And this morning I'd like to start with verses 1 through 8. Isaiah 58 verses 1 through 8. Let's stand together and hear God's word. Isaiah 58 verse 1. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And everybody said, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray this morning that you would open this up for us. Help us to understand your heart, to to resonate to it, to believe it, to live it out. Oh God, that we would understand your heart for us and the redemption of sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, the Jews killed the prophets. Why did they kill the prophets? That's what they did. They rejected God's prophets, and then they killed them, as they did with Jesus, the final prophet of God. The Jews killed the prophets because the prophets were convicting. As I've said before, the prophets keep it all on the table. The prophets bring it out in full color. The prophets are explicit in their language. More than that, the prophets are hyperbolic in their expressions of that which is bad, the, the thing that afflicts us as well as the thing that fixes us. So there's hyperbole. It's impossible to miss what they're saying. They are in your face. They don't let you back away from the truth that they're, they're bringing out. And, and one of the goals of this Isaiah study is to get you and to get me and to get all of us to appreciate the prophets. Where our hearts resonate to the prophets. Where we say amen to the prophets. Where we hear the hyperbole, we hear the emotional language, we go, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Amen to that, and amen to that, and that too. You know, to, to ride the, 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 the flow of the language as we go into the deepest valleys and then we merge into the mountaintops, the most glorious peaks of presentation of God's great salvation and redemption, that we would resonate at every single point of what Isaiah is bringing out in the prophets. That is, my goal is that you not kill the prophets, but you agree with them. That makes sense? You resonate to them. You say amen to them. Part of the challenge, of course, is to understand them. So that's my job, is to help you to understand a bit of what they're saying. And at points, they're sarcastic. For example, in verses 3 and 4, you see sarcasm. Maybe you didn't pick that up the first time you read it, but you've got to get into the attitude of it. The prophets have an attitude. You've got to be able to relate to it, resonate to it, you know what I'm saying? So, so that's, I think that's difficult for people to do if they're used to listening to lectures. But hey, <laughs> prophets don't lecture. So, Enjoy the prophets, resonate to them, receive them. Uh, that, that would be my goal for you as we get into this today. Let's start with verse 1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression. So the prophet is told to just sock it to them. Go for it. Say it. Shout it. Put it out in front of them. Who cares if they resist you? Who cares that they throw your carcass out into the parking lot? That's what my brother said. Either you're going to run to the altar or you're going to run to the parking lot. Here I say it's going to be one or the other. So, so God is telling the prophet to speak out, speak up, get loud, trumpet. The problems with the people of Israel this period of time. This is precisely what John the Baptist does, loses his head. This is what Jesus does. This is what Peter does in Acts chapter 2. This is what they do. I mean, let's face it. To, to stand in front of the plate glass window of the Sanhedrin, what, 40 days after the crucifixion of the Messiah and pointing the finger at these Pharisees and these Jews that you guys killed your Messiah, that would be politically incorrect. It's not, not going to curry much favor on the part of the religious leaders of the day. And that's what the prophets do. You stand up in a university classroom and you say, hey, I just want to tell you all, God loves you all and has a wonderful plan for your life. They're all going to say, well, that sounds good. Have a nice day. But you stand up and you say, I just want to say that all liars, all fornicators, and all homosexuals will have their place in the lake of fire that will burn eternally and they will crucify you. But what God is saying to us is put it out there. Put it in front of the people. Don't mince words. Make it plain. Make it clear. Tell the people where they are. Be honest with them. And this, of course, is what all of the preachers and pastors and prophets do throughout Scripture. And they get in trouble for it. God says to the preachers, cry aloud, spare not, 
Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions. And as we say, you know what? You've got to have the bad news before you get the good news. And here's a principle that I think applies to, to, to everybody, to all of us, whether we are immature in the faith or we've grown mature in the faith through the years. Here's a principle. Go, the badder the bad news, the gooder the good news. I just make up words whenever I want to. But I just want to make it plain with you. The badder the bad news, the gooder the good news. The badder the bad news in the perception of the hearer, the gooder the good news in the perception of the hearer. And so that's, that's why the prophetic word. That's why the preaching of the word of God. That's why the hyperbole and the increased hyperbole that happens in the ministry of the word of God through the years. Now, initially, it may not be very hyperbolic in your mind. It may be more so in the mind of the speaker or somebody else in the congregation. But that's the progress or the process by which the Word of God makes sense to you. And that's why, of course, we go over the same subjects over and over again. The most essential part of the Christian ministry is preaching. That is, if you come into a Christian church, you're not here to hear a lecture. You're not here to hear a conversation 2 Timothy chapter 4 is very clear that the reason for the church gathering is first and foremost for the charisma of the word. That is, the, the preaching, the announcement, the, the heralding, the trumpeting. The word is for trumpeting or, sh- or shouting, for example. doesn't mean we have to shout the whole time, but we lift up our voices a bit and Apply a little authority and uh, a sense of, of the truth of it, yes, but the relevance of it, the import of it, the significance of it, that needs to be all wrapped up into uh, the, the presentation of the Word of God on a Sunday morning. So that's why we read here, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. And yes, at points, people will want to toss you out into the parking lot for it. yes. But, but this is what God wants. This is what he demands of his preachers. So what we're to do. All right, let's move on to verse 2. These folks, very religious. They attend church. They fast. There's an interest in God. But there's an hypocrisy about the people. So this is the transgression that is being laid out for the people. That they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why we've fasted, they say, and you have not seen and Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and so forth. So these folks, very religious. This is for religious people. This is for Americans as well as the Jews in the first century or the Jews in the 7th or 10th century B.C. They seek me daily. They say, why have we fasted? We came. We were interested. We wanted to hear a good lecture. We wanted to hear a good sermon. We wanted to go over uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy again. It's good. Why well, I wanted to be there. I take a lot of interest. I take notes. They fast, etc., but they miss the core message. And this is, this is the point of the sermon this morning. They miss the essential message. If you have a conversation with them in the foyer afterwards, they don't back, go back into the essential message. 
They're always working the superficial. They're always working, well, you'd see. Talked about not tripping a blind man. I've been very careful to do that. I'm so glad we went over that lecture from Deuteronomy again. That they, they just don't get it. When you have that conversation offline, they don't go to the point. They don't get the essential message. They're blinded to it. This is the problem with so many Christian sects today as well. They seem to miss the core, the essential emphasis that God considered to be important. That was missed. And this is the point driven home here in Isaiah 58. There's people so religious. Fasting. What is fasting? Fasting is a form of dedicated, concentrated religious fervor. It's expression of religious desire. Usually fasting is associated with prayer because we're appealing to God. We're dedicating ourselves to uh, the appeal to God for something. It's that passionately seeking out of something, man's greatest need. It's an anguish. It's, there's an agony. There's a fervency about them. That's why people fast. Sometimes there's even ecstatic expressions in worship as well. I want to give you a more modern illustration of this by way of the Russian church and the history of the Russian church going back to the turn of the 20th century, I believe it's important to understand Russia. That's why I've studied as much as I have recently. You need to understand Putin. You need to understand the Russian Orthodox Church. I think it will have increasing significance in the outplaying of of world history in the next, say, 10, 20 years. But at the turn of the 16th century, Russian worship services were four hours long. And everybody stood the whole time. You guys got to understand the fervor of Russian Orthodoxy. You got to understand it, especially in the 16th century. The regimen for fasting was intense. It was about half the year. Four long annual fasts, two weekly fasts on Wednesdays and Fridays, amounting to about 180 days throughout the year. Required fasts on the part of the organized church in the 16th century Russia. Phenomenal. I've never seen anything like it. These people were on fire for their fasting. And yet, despite the intense religious involvement, the Russian people had the reputation of being some of the most immoral people on the face of the earth. Kind of stuff you'd read about them, nightmarish. Nightmarish. The contrast was phenomenal. Not unlike, of course, the 10th and 15th century popes, so the Roman Catholics had their share of this as well. But the czars really set the standard for Russia. Now, Ivan the Terrible, anybody heard of Ivan the Terrible? Ivan the Terrible, one of probably the most terrible people that ever lived, and set the standard for the communists and the Russians that came afterwards. You want to understand the cruelty of the 20th century, the hundreds of millions of people that were slaughtered in the 20th century, some of us step back, why, 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 why all of this? It goes directly to Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible is the beginning of all of this. Uh, he was well instructed in the New Testament and the Gospels. He was very good at arguing over biblical doctrine. I followed through some of his soliloquies, his arguments against the Reformation, for example. Very well schooled in the Word of God. He was known for his tremendous expressions of religious zeal, religious ecstatic experiences. And all of this immediately followed up with the most horrific forms of immorality, cruelty, and tyranny that the world has ever seen. He would go directly from worship to the underground chambers of evil in one of the most nightmarish expressions of Christian religious fervor the world has ever seen. Now, fast forward to the collapse of the Romanovs in 1917, making way for the communists. Of course, it's Tsar Nicholas. 
And, and you, you all know about Alexandra, right? Heavily influenced by who? Rasputin. And we all know Rasputin as sort of this evil man who, who did much to bring about the nightmares of the 20th century. But who is Rasputin? Why did he have such a hypnotic effect upon Alexandra? People ask these questions all the time. And the reason is that, that this man was exactly like the czar, Ivan, and uh, he f- followed the religious sect of the Kleistes. He was an insane holy man, known for extremely deep piety in his language and practice, extreme ecstatic forms of religious dancing, uh, being slain in the spirit and all this sort of thing, immediately followed up with the worst forms of sinful behavior that you can imagine, stuff I could never describe to any of you. All right, so this is what happens with Russian Orthodoxy. This is what happens with this external form that is so, so intently applied to the people over a number of centuries. Suffice it to say, the shocking nature of this perverse form of religion is something that almost nobody has encountered, unless you read the history of the Russian church. But I do believe this form of religion has has affected America. It's affected the West, in certain sects especially. The point here is that there's no end to the depth of deception capable of the human heart. This is what's blown me away. I don't even trust my own heart. I mean, I read this sort of stuff, I go, the, the, the degree to which the human heart can bring about deception and hypocrisy in any denomination, not just the Russian Orthodox, but in anybody. Friends, we cannot trust the human heart. This is extreme religious hypocrisy. But what is it? What is extreme religious hypocrisy. Let's get down to it from this passage that's before us today. And I I, I believe it is to miss what God considers to be core. to To what God considers to be the emphasis of what he considers to be the most important core desire of the human heart as expressed in our church congregations. So let's go through it. Verses 3 and 4, God does not condemn fervency. So anybody who condemns David dancing before the ark, fervency in worship, fervency in singing, fervency in obedience to God, fervency in the love of the brethren, anybody who condemns fervency, you're off base. I believe all humans are fervent about something. But the question is, what is it? God condemns the wrong object of this anguish, this agony, this religious fervor. It's the fact they had the wrong object or or focal point. Verse 4, in the day of your fast you find pleasures and exploit all your labors. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. What are these bad fasts? Let's go over them one by one. Again, this is what is it that God wants of us? What is it that God values? What is his desire? What is your desire? Your desire needs to be God's desire, but what is it? Well, here he says, they fast for their own pleasures. They seem to be on fire. They seem to be focused on their own pleasure. That's what drives them in their lives. That's what drives all humans by nature is to feed their own pleasures. It's all about me. 
to exploit the laborers for my own benefit. It's about my own material well-being. That's their focus. That becomes their focal point. Perhaps for some, they won't admit it, but God's drilling down into it and said, what's the reason for the reason, for the reason that you do these things? And he says, it's for your own pleasure. It comes down to that. That's what your lives are about. That's what you think about all the time. That's your value system. That's it for you. God knows your thoughts. God knows your motives. And he goes to it here. Secondly, fasting for strife and debate. Using fasts, religious exercises, to give them greater license, greater encouragement to sin, and looser reign upon their lusts. As John Calvin put it in his commentary, it's a spirit of conflict, pride, evil surmise. This is exactly what Ivan IV ran into. This is it. This is it. This is the thing. His evil surmisings just overwhelmed him. His pride was just what, what drove him to all of these horrendous torments and things. But it is within the church, too. You find some churches where it just seems like their churches, their denominations are about conflict. They get together as presbyteries, and they're constantly, year after year after year after year, going from one conflict to the next, to the next, to the next. You're fasting for conflict, for pride, for evil surmisings, for gossip, for envy, for bitterness. It dominates you. It dominates your thought processes. It's out of control. The whole basis for the religion is wrong. They're proud of their doctrine. They love arguing over polemics. They measure in the debatable, the quarrelsome, the questionable. Which is exactly what the apostle warns us of in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise, Paul says, does not consent to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is... That's the thing that matters to them. That's, they want to live out this loving your enemies and giving up your coat and your cloak and all of your goods to the poor. You know, just love that. They, just, they don't want to live it. They want to find more ways to live it. But if, if you're like beyond the wholesome words of Jesus and onto the doctrine which accords with godliness, that man is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy and strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. So this is what, what the whole thing's about. It tends to be about opinions. It tends to be about me being right and you being wrong. And that really becomes the thing that dominates their minds and ministries, as Paul is talking about here. But what, what matters to us is the bottom line increase after all the religious piety going on. 4,000 hours of church services, and what's the ultimate increase in love and unity and edification and the fruit of the Spirit? We'll get to some of this in a moment. But these folks are, are dominated by self-centeredness and power struggles and pride and the desire to prove themselves right, evil suspicions and fear-mongering, control over others and divisiveness. That's the thing that they're all about. That's what the ministries are characterized by. Well, let's move on to number three. They also fast in order that they may strike with a fist of wickedness. Now, again, one thinks of Ivan, one thinks of the mafia, faithful in the confessional and the mass, Friday fasting, the, the, the mafia does all of that and then run out and kill more people on Monday. Man is very religious by nature. Man's heart is full of perceived needs and concerns. He will agonize over things. People do that. 
But the question is, what is your passion? What, what, what is it? What is the passion of your life, the priority of everybody's life? What do they spend their time doing? What are the things that matter more than anything else as obvious by the things they talk about and what they do in their lives? Where is the compass point of your heart, you know, where the compass comes back to that magnetic point? There's that magnet sitting there, but where's the magnet sitting? Where the, the compass of your heart is moving towards the magnet every time. You may come to church and the magnet moves back over here, uh, but then the, the, the next day the magnet's back over here. So where is the, the compass of your heart pointing towards? Where is it pointing towards? That's the question here. And I think what the text is telling us is that people are very committed to their own health and wealth. That, that seems to be it for, for a lot of folks. They, it's their health, their wealth. They think about it all the time. They talk about it all the time. The satisfaction of their own lusts. Sometimes it's the temporary silencing of their consciences while they continue a life of rebellion against God. In other words, they come for the religious service for a little bit of, well, at least I did that and made God happy, and and now I can pacify my own conscience and go on and live a dissolute life. So sometimes their passion, again, is towards their pacifying their angry conscience so that they can continue on fulfilling the lusts of their flesh. So this is their religious exercise. This is what they're doing. And then number four, in verse five, we find the fast and the religious fervency is enforced. Is it a fast I've chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call that a fast and accept the day of the Lord? These are scheduled fasts. These are appropriate scheduling of fasts on the part of churches, part of ministries, etc. Again, the 16th century view of the Russian monasteries discovered the novitiates to the monastery were instructed to, quote, look pious, with eyes lowered, neck bent, face pale, and cry often. You know, check, 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 and check. The superficiality was enforced in the most rigid and purest forms. Phenomenal. Now, I think we need to step back and ask ourselves, what about regulated liturgical devices, which have become popular in Presbyterian churches in the last 15 years? The Lutherans do it. The Catholics do it. The Orthodox do it. They tend to have liturgical devices. They kneel a lot. Now, again, I want you all to think about this because the elders are talking about Our elders are talking about liturgical devices. What do you guys think? The Lutherans have it right? The Greek Orthodox have it right? What do you think? To, to, to schedule it, to, to present it, to, to lay it out for people, enforcing kneeling in the services, bowing heads. Sometimes we say, everybody bow your head now. Church fasts, corporate confessions of sin. Do we do that? Raising hands in worship, saying corporate amens. Do we do any of this? Should we stop doing this? Well, the answer, of course, is that 
the heart and the hands must be in coordination. If, if you overplay the kneeling, overplay the fasting, overplay the structure, and people's hearts aren't on board with it, then the evangelical step and say, we can solve the problem, we'll remove all forms, and then we'll just wait for authentic people to come into the worship and worship authentically. So again, this is not an easy question for elders to consider. I'm, I'm just throwing it out on the table for you guys to understand what our elders are trying to deal with as, as we're asking the questions, do we bring the Lutheran liturgical devices into Presbyterianism? Again, I'm not saying that we abandon all corporate forms, but there's a risk to introducing them. There's a risk for us to take a pause. Let's all confess our sins now. What if like 90% of you don't even think of anything? Then it's just a big fake. We're just doing a big fakey thing when we have our confession of sin. What if we have a rote confession that we all say together? Maybe that will help us. Well, what if nobody really is on board with that? Maybe their hearts haven't been humbled and they're not contrite before God and they can't agree with the words they're reading on the screen. What about that? You see, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm putting before you the challenge that is before any religious people. This is the challenge. The heart and the hands, the external and the internal, must be in symbiotic order with each other. If the heart's not there, then all bets are off. All right, so let's move on. Again, not solving the problem now. I'm just simply saying that if the heart is not engaged on Sunday morning, what are we doing here? Why are we coming here? We're just coming here to be a bunch of hypocrites, to act like we're worshiping, act like we're confessing our sins, act like we're saying amen, act like we're praising God in the singing and such. But if our hearts aren't with it, then... You see, it's hardly worth us showing up. So, again, there is a reason for forms. We'll present the forms. But we have to be sure that the hearts of the people are, at least to some extent, engaged. Let's move on. Verse 6. Now, the fervency, the agony, the deep religious desires that God is looking for here. The crying need before us. The crying need before God himself. What is it? Why fast? Why the agony? Why the angst? Why why do we come down on our knees for six hours and, and fast all afternoon for something? What is it? What is the thing we need more than anything else? What is the agonizing cry of the human heart as we consider ourselves and others? We look into the faces of our friends and relatives. What do you see? What do you see? You look into the faces of those who are in such need of Christ. What do you see? Does your heart ache? And does your heart break? That's the question here. What do you agonize over? What is it that brings you the deepest agony of your life? What is it? What does God see when He looks at us? To unloose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke.
Brothers and sisters, they're enslaved. They're slaves. They're in bondage to their addictions. They're in bondage to idolatry. It's hard. Isn't it hard? Is it hard for you to see it? Can you see it? I look into the faces of those who for 28 years have been in the bondage of pornography. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Held captive by the devil. He's got them. Under condemnation. Look in their faces so twisted, not, not really receiving the forgiveness of Jesus. Not, they haven't experienced it. They just feel the condemnation on them. The fear of death, slavery to the devil, idolatry and addictions. They do what the flesh tells them to do. They do what the devil tells them to do. In bondage to the devil. They have to sin. They have to sin. They're controlled by their lusts, controlled by anger, controlled by pride, completely under the control of their idols, blinded to the truth, living in a dungeon, chained to the devil. These are our friends and relatives. It's every person on earth by nature, isn't it? Children of wrath, even as others. Isn't that it? So, brothers and sisters, this is it. This is it. This is why we're here. This is why we fast. This is why we pray. This is it. The chains are six inches thick. There's a 4,000 year cry from the entire world for the, for the release of the control of the devil upon people around the world. And Jesus came down. Jesus crossed a billion light years from the third heaven all the way down to earth in order to bring about a redemption for us, in order to make an announcement for us. And that's why Luke 4, that's why the quotation from Isaiah 61, there it is, as Jesus approaches that synagogue, one more time, we'll read it again. Now, he waited 4,000 years for this. He fasted, or his people fasted, as it were, for 4,000 years. Now, think about a 4,000-year fast, waiting for 4,000, waiting from the eons of eternity, planning it out, that he would come to bring about a redemption of the slaves. And so he comes out, first thing in the synagogue, the first thing we read in Luke chapter 4 in his ministry, the Spirit of the Lord, he reads it upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the leader, sat down, the eyes of everybody on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your eyes. And they tried to kill him for it. Because man by nature doesn't receive the major message. They're like, What? Me, a captive to the devil? I don't think so. They don't resonate to it. They don't feel it. They can't exalt to it. They'll kill him if he says it. But 2,000 years later, we're sitting here going, 
Could this be true? Shall I believe the Son of God? Shall I believe God himself? God's plan, God's purpose given a thousand years earlier or 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah and then fulfilled in that synagogue in Luke chapter 4 by our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We hear the words of God. He said, I've come to set the captives free. I've come to set you free. I'm here. I've been planning this from all eternity. I'm here to, to buy a redemption for you, to ransom you from the slavery of the devil and your fear of death so that you could leap for joy in the assembly of the saints and sing these songs. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee and mean it and feel like dancing when I sing it. That's it. Brothers and sisters, that's it. That's why he came, to give you redemption. And there are people who said, that's it for me. Hallelujah. So you're sitting there today and you're saying, is this message for me? Is this message for 8 billion people around the globe, for them as well as for me? Is this message worth fasting about? Is this message worth the pastor getting a little bit excited about? I'm just throwing that out. Brothers, sisters, I want you to understand. Look into the eyes of these people. Would you please do that? Relatives, friends, neighbors. Look into the eyes of these people. I challenge you to do it. The bondage of the demonic spirit of condemnation and judgmentalism that is so many families in its grip. It's a heavy spirit. It's, it's too much. You cannot bear it. So you shift that condemnation, judgmentalism over to others. It's a spirit that crushes it crushes its victims. Condemning. No gospel. Just judgmentalism. In condemnation. First on this person and then on everybody else this person runs into. You, you can't live that way. Amen. Who wants to live under the bondage of condemnation? Jesus sets you free from it. Does anybody receive that this morning? Can you even say hallelujah? Can you raise your hands? Amen to that. I don't want the spirit of condemnation. There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. We're freed from that in Christ. Hallelujah. Reasons to say hallelujah this morning. The bondage of unloving divisiveness in reference to brothers and sisters in Christ. The bondage of fear to share the gospel. Some people are bound up in fear. They can't share the gospel. They haven't experienced it much maybe themselves. There's just this fear. This dread fear, this paralysis that's set over so many in the churches today. That shouldn't be. Jesus came to set the captives free from that fear. And to set you free from the bondage of divisiveness within the body of Christ. And to set you free to love, as my brother exhorted this morning. Jesus came to break the chains. Chains are broken by Christ. He crushed the serpent's head on the cross. He's robbing the strong man's house. Our Jesus, our Yeshua, our Joshua, our captain of the hosts of God's armies have come to set us free, to, to break the bonds of, of this horrible bondage upon us. All of our religious passion, our focus, 
Our sense of need should just pour out on the promises and the truth of this today. We need the chains broken. We need the prisoners released. We need the spirit of fear, of anger, of lust, of self, of idolatry just crushed. And those in bondage released from Satan's grip today. And I believe that the mere proclamation of it, that me just saying it or anybody just saying it, doesn't have to be me. I use my hands, you don't, that's okay. Just say it. Jesus Christ has come to set you free from the bondage of idolatry and sin and the fear of death and everything else. He has come to set us free. I love to say it. I want to say it some more. Don't you love to say it? Just get it out. Say it to somebody. Share it with somebody. There's freedom in saying it. There's freedom believing it. There's, there's freedom in Christ. Let's, let's celebrate it this morning, brothers and sisters. Just say it. Just declare it. Let the, let the nations know that God has come to redeem. Jesus has come to set the captives free. And that's me. And that's you. And, and we're free today. Hallelujah. Children, your notes. Let's go over your notes briefly. Sometimes I forget. I apologize. Number one, God doesn't want us to argue and fight with each other. Okay? Number two, children, God wants us to be free from the chains of sin. And that's what the pastor's been bringing out this morning. God wants us. When I say God wants us, children, God really wants us to be free from the chains of sin. It's his passion. He's more excited than pastor is. Amen, children? That's his passion. I'm going to get more into his passion as we go here, but this is what Jesus came to do. But let's move on to verse 7. There is also this concern for the greatest needs of others within the body of Christ. We fast, we desire, we express agony over our desires to rescue others who are cast out naked and poor. Verse 7, it's, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Now, as I read this, I thought this is rather strange that we would fast, that we would have a passion, we would fast over a desire to minister to a leper colony in Laos. I just throw that out. I mean, does, does that seem odd to you? First time you're ready. So that's like the fast. That's your passion. You're, you're, you're fasting for, say, the next six months, a week at a time, one on, one off, because you want to give up your life for a leper colony in Laos. Is that strange to anybody? It seemed odd to me the first time I read it. So that's the agony. Well, brothers and sisters, it is the passion of Christ for his body. It's an agony for the persecuted church. It's loving what Christ loves. Why, why did Christ have his passion? You've heard of the passion of Christ. It wasn't just a movie. It's seen as his death and resurrection, his well, his suffering and his death at the cross. That, that's what it's seen as. Why the passion? Why the commitment? Why the crucifixion? Because he wanted to redeem us. 
That's his passion. And all we're saying this morning, the message is very simple. His passion should be your passion. That's it. That's the message. His passion should be your passion. That's all. You say, what was his passion? His passion for, was for the redemption of sinners, us. Setting of the captives free, us. And what else? Love for his body. He loved his body and gave himself for his church. His passion is for his church. His passion is for his body. Those sweat drops of blood for the church was for love for the body. Now all he's saying to us is that sweat, drops of blood that's coming from you and from me has got to be for this church, for the body of Christ. That's all he's saying. So brothers and sisters, what's your passion in life? What's the thing that stirs up agony, commitment, focus for your life? I want to close with Matthew 25. This is the great and awesome day of judgment that takes place at the end of the world. Jesus is the judge. He's sitting over the whole world administering justice and and bringing every work into judgment at the end of the world. And in verse 34, 31, back up to 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations gather together, the sheep on the one side, the goats on the other. And the King will say to those on His right side, come, that is the sheep, come, you who are blessed by My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Brothers and sisters, I don't believe this is merit at all. This is just who you are. This is just your value system. That's all we're talking about here. You're not earning some kind of state in heaven later on. There's none of that here. This is just simply who are you? What are your values in life? What do you love? That's the only question. It's a a fairly simple concept. What is the matter discussed in the final judgment? Now here, it's just one simple thing. It's just one simple thing. Important for all of us, right? We're all going to be in judgment day someday. So what is, I think this is one of the most important passages in Scripture. Now, they're not talking about the finer points of eschatology, ecclesiology, even soteriology, et cetera, et cetera, who you voted for, how much you complained about politics, whether you used public policy to change the world or not. None of that's really discussed on the Day of Judgment. How much money you made, how much money you contributed to the kingdom of God just in general, who you witnessed to, how many people got saved. None of that comes up here. What is it that comes up here? It's just the focal point in terms of the conversation or the one-way conversation that comes on Judgment Day is, is simply this. 
How did you treat the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Did you recognize them? Did you love them as you would want to love Jesus? That's it. And what Jesus is saying here is, I died for this body. I love this body. Now you love them too. That's all he's saying. And his, his, his focal point here happens to be that we are concerned for the least of the brothers of Jesus Christ. That's why the persecuted saints are so essential for us. Well, let's move on to the last couple of verses. The blessings that flow when the heart is right, the passion is rightly focused. When there's that regeneration of heart, the new creature in Christ, which is really what we've been talking about up to this point. Well, what, what is it? What happens? Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call. The Lord will answer. You shall cry. You'll say, here am I. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry, satisfy the afflicted soul, and your light shall shine in the darkness, your darkness shall be as noonday. The Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your soul in drought, strengthen your bones, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, you shall be called the power of the breach, restorer of the streets to dwell in. What are we saying here? What we're saying is, you get the core, everything else follows. What's the core? I need to be redeemed. My brothers and sisters in Christ need redemption as I need redemption. And all of those refugees outside of the camp, they need redemption. That's the core message. We need to be redeemed. And only Jesus can do that for us. That's the core message. That's the passion. And of course, our love for the body of Christ. But he says, well, everything else is bonus. Everything else falls into place. Just seeing your need for the redemption of God. That's it. That's where it starts. And then the blessings flow. So, brothers and sisters, in application, what can we say? Our passion, our concern, needs to be for the salvation of sinners, the redemption of those who are yet to be redeemed. Our concern Our passion should be for the persecuted church of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday we bring this out. Lockman's bring it out for us. It is core to who we are. This is it. This is why we gather. This is why we fast. It's for redemption. It's for freeing the prisoners, relieving the afflicted, the persecuted. So our concern is for more redemption initiating the rescue operations, the relief operations. That, above all, is our passion. Abandoning the lesser concerns, the counterproductive concerns, pointing the finger, which seems to me to be, that's the blame-shifting, judgmentalism, condemnation. That's the ministry of condemnation. Always wanting to point the finger and find somebody to blame and find somebody else's sin to talk about. No, no, no. That's counterproductive. That's not our concern. That's not what we do. That's not the passion of our lives. It's not to communicate hopelessness, shift blame, initiate church fights over stupid things, telling everybody how bad everybody else is, condemning sinners but refusing to provide them with the gospel message. 
being consumed with self-preservation, fighting over our own territory, arguing over our right to be right. No, 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 no. That's not our passion. Our passion is the redemption of Jesus. Abandon all these other focal points and embrace the thing that matters most to God. And that is our redemption. And that will matter most here and for eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, oh, that we would come back to full center and understand your commitment, your passion, your focal points, the thing that matters most, the core message this morning is our redemption, that you have set the captives free, that you've broken the chains, that you've done it by your son, Jesus Christ. You planned it from all eternity and you've exercised it at the cross of Jesus Christ, and now it is for us to get the message out. This should be our passion. Father, we pray that anybody who doesn't understand this, anybody who's still under the condemnation, anybody who's still in, in chains, not set free yet from their sin, their idolatry, whatever it is, Father, we pray today the shoe will fall, that the Spirit of God would tell that person, you are freed in Jesus Christ. And they would believe it today. And Father, that we also would care for the afflicted. That we'd visit the, the poor. And, and be there for the, 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 the brothers and sisters that are in prison around the world. Writing those cards and letters. And, and giving as much as we possibly can give to the needs of the saints. Father God, that this will be the passion of our lives because this is your passion. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a moment before we come to the communion table and consider the passion of Christ again. We say the passion of Christ. What do we mean? The commitment, the conviction, the dedication of Christ to bring about our redemption. But we see that there are other godly men throughout history who've had this passion. And I guess this is the first time I've seen this. There is a tremendous passion for this throughout Scripture. This redemption theme, this setting captives free, it's, it's huge. Think about Nehemiah in chapter 5. What happened in Nehemiah chapter 5? You all know they were mortgaging their lands to other Israelites and they were enslaving their sons and daughters. And Nehemiah was incensed, practically pulled out the beards of the men, pronounced a curse on them. The, Nehemiah is passionate anyway. We get that. Nehemiah is one of the most passionate men in all of Scripture. But he comes unglued when these guys are, are mortgaging their properties and enslaving their sons and daughters. It's just, it's so bad in the minds of these Old Testament saints. Jeremiah 34, Jeremiah, this is at the very end of Judah. I think it was Zedekiah who was king at the time. And Jeremiah insisted at the very end, and God insisted through his prophet Jeremiah that they institute the Jubilee. But they wouldn't do it. Or they kind of half-heartedly did it, they didn't do it. And now listen to this. This is, uh, this is really remarkable ang language. There is anguish, there is agony, there is passion here. 
beyond any other scripture I can find. I think this is like it. This is like number one in terms of biblical passion. Listen to what he says, Jeremiah 34, 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty. Every one of his brother, every one to his neighbor, behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword. To pestilence, to famine, I will declare you, I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give you to the hand of the enemies. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. Is that passionate? Would you, would you call that passionate language? Oh, uh, yeah. Intensely passionate language all over the issue of them celebrating the Jubilee. That's it. They, he just wanted them to do the Jubilee. He wanted liberty to the people because God believes in redemption. Does anybody question that fact? God is 100% heart deep to the very core of his being wanting to set you free from your sins today. That's what he's conveying to us as his people. That's his commitment. Okay. Now Paul. And I just mentioned Paul because Galatians 5, my brother just preached from it. Paul is mad. You agree with that? I may be a little bit off, but certainly the other prophets have been. Paul is, is very upset. He, he says, I'm so sick of this. Where these people are trying to entangle you back into the yoke of bondage. Somebody come and cut them to pieces. That's what he's saying in, in Galatians 5. That, to me, that's the most passionate I've ever seen the Apostle Paul. He's kind of like this real logical guy. I mean, he really is, right? He's kind of logical. He works through all of his epistles, and we, you know, we study under Paul. But here he is, he's, pulled, he's rolled up his, his hands, taken off the gloves. He let's take this thing outside. That's what he's saying here in Galatians 5. I don't want to re-preach your message, brother, but certainly we're getting the passion there. But I, I don't want to stop there. I want to keep going. The redemption is pictured by the most spectacular deliverance of all time in terms of the Old Testament pictures, and that is, of course, the Red Sea deliverance of God's people from the greatest empire on earth. Very dramatic, very powerful, memorable. You do blockbuster movies on it. It's huge. It's magnificent. It's huge in our minds. Can't get it out of our minds. That's because God's so committed to this thing. And then Jesus himself testifies to his passion in Isaiah 63, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Again, the passion of Jesus to bring about the redemption of his people. There it is, Isaiah 63. He went to the extreme, and that's just the most extreme language possible. He went to the extreme to bring about our redemption, our ransom from the bondage of the devil and sin to set us free from our lusts and our pride and, and our fear of death and all the rest. Okay. And then finally, just to leave you with this one passage as we come to the table today, here it is, 1 Peter 1.18. You were not bought, that is, bought from slavery, redeemed, ransomed. You were not bought with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. Now, I want you to catch this verse, 20. He indeed, 
that is Jesus, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the earth. Meaning that this great redemption, this great deliverance was planned from all eternity. God's heart was into this from before the beginning of time. That's the commitment he had to bring about your redemption and mine. And he did it. And he did it. And it is the blood that was shed on the cross that bought our redemption. Praise be to God. He came. He set the captives free. And and today we commemorate the ransom. We commemorate the ransom price. The cup is a memory of the blood of Jesus Christ that came out of his veins and arteries that was used to bring about our redemption from the bondage of self, from the bondage of idolatry, from the bondage of the fear of death, from the bondage of the devil. It's for us to believe it today and to take this cup in a believing manner. As you take the cup, as you take the bread, say, I believe in the redemption price that Jesus played on the cross for me by his blood. Just confess this openly to God as we receive the the bread and the cup today. Father, we come to you again, oh Father, and we are overwhelmed by the price that was paid. Father, this price was beyond silver and gold. It It was the precious blood of your only begotten son, your, your beloved son, shedding his blood for sheer love for us and obedience to you and commitment to the plan and the purpose that was set in eternity to bring about this great redemption. Father, that we would not look at it in a meanly way today. Help us, Father, to see the awesomeness of the blood of Jesus. Help us to be overwhelmed that, that you should do this for me, for us, sinners. Father, what grace, what mercy. Oh, that we would see it better today. And, and oh, what joy to be loved by God and set free from this intolerable bondage by you, God, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amazing, amazing love, amazing grace. Amazing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.